This morning we are once again in Hebrews chapter 11, where we've been for a few weeks now. And there the writer to the Hebrews is encouraging his friends, as we've seen. He's encouraging them to endure, and there he's reminding them of some of the Old Testament figures, the heroes of the faith, as they would know them, and reminding them of God's work in and through these people of old. And this is what he says in regard to Moses this morning. And uh, we'll read Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, and then move on to verses 23 to 29, as you can see in your bulletin on page 8. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray together again that you would come. We pray that you would give to us your spirit, give us eyes to see and hearts to believe your good news. We pray, Lord, you would do that because we recognize apart from you doing that, we're just reading and listening to words which mean nothing. But if you would come, then these words would be life and we pray that that would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Just sit down, have a seat. About 20 years ago, I got to go through a week of ministry training. It was my introduction as a staff member to RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is our denomination's campus ministry. I was coming on board as an intern at Texas A&M University two decades ago, and I went to Jackson, Mississippi for a week of staff training, and there made a number of new friends in ministry And during that week, we took as a part of the course of what we were doing a very simple, brief little personality profile test to see where we kind of fell in the spectrum of of what our strengths were and the things that we tended to lean on. And one of my friends, new friends at the time, and now an old friend in ministry, he's now a pastor elsewhere, one of my friends who was from Scotland, he came with kind of the, you know, the ruddy Scottish accent, and, and he was proud to be a Scot. His personality, as was determined by this simple test, was what this test called a dominant personality. He was a strong character. He was a dominant one in, in almost every way that you can imagine, and as a part of the study of that little bit of personality profile, we went through some different characteristic words that would describe the different personalities. And one of the big ones that stood out in his profile was 
defiance. Now, we were going into ministry together. We were in training for ministry, and he knew, having been a Christian for quite some time, that that didn't quite sound right. And he didn't like the idea that, God, am I defiant? I don't know that that sounds right. That doesn't fit in ministry, I don't think. I don't think that I like that. And so from the back of the room, as we all kind of joked about it, he slammed his fist on the table and said, I'm not defiant. Prove the point. God has made amazing use of him in ministry for decades since. You know, there are a lot of good words for defiance, all kinds of, of synonyms for it. Intractable and recalcitrant and obstreperous. Good words that you might want to add to your category of words that you use each day, perhaps. But it's not so easy to find three of them that begin with the same letter which I wanted to do for a helpful sermon outline for you. You know, preacher tricks. I know you appreciate that. So I did, though. Repression and refusal and rejection. All fun words, but not exactly becoming of the fruit of the Spirit, are they? And they just don't really seem to fit for us. And yet, the truth is that gospel faith, as we see here in this passage, brings about a stubbornness against the world which is crucial evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work. There is a defiance about gospel faith through which God works miracles. This letter to the Hebrews is about endurance. He's said to his friends, Remember the former days, friends, when you endured a hard struggle. And he's trying to persuade his friends, Don't quit. Don't go back to your old religious ways. Don't quit on the gospel. In fact, he says to them here in Hebrews 11 that if you return to your old religious ways in order to be acceptable in the society in which you live, then you return to a place where you won't find your Old Testament heroes. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even Moses, he says, won't be there. By faith, these ancients trusted in the redemptive work of Yahweh, which was promised to them even though it was yet to be seen by them. And they trusted in Him. And so He says, look at Moses now and see how he defied the world. And so that's what we do here this morning with a little bit of interpretive help from an interesting spot in the New Testament In Acts chapter 7, from the New Testament's first martyr, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, who made a profound statement of faith on trial, being called to question for what he believed before the religious authorities of the day, Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, gives this fascinating historical summary of redemptive history from Abraham right on through right up to Jesus to explain to his persecutors why he believed what he believed and who Jesus was, Stephen there gives us some interesting things to work with. The first thing we see here is this defiance is shown by the repression of fear. Repression is to inhibit or constrain or to control, to hold back. And 
for we all know, I think that that can be harmful at times. It can be a harmful thing to do, especially in regard to emotional responses, grief and anxiety and anger. To just repress those things is not a healthy thing to do, but it's a useful word here. Maybe a better word that doesn't begin with R, so it wasn't convenient for me, is oppression. Not so much repression, but oppression, to, to press down, to push down and to push back. It doesn't mean here, I think that as a Christian, you don't know fear or that you don't feel fear, certainly not in Moses' case, but gospel faith will repress it. In other words, what I mean is it'll shove it aside because it sees something greater, something more powerful. It will do that because you're emboldened by a call. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, it had been some generations since Joseph had died and his body had been placed in the coffin. And you remember last week, his bones remained there in the coffin for generations of time there in Egypt collecting dust. And by now, Joseph's remains were just bones in a box. And now a pharaoh, a king, had arisen who knew not Joseph, who didn't remember or care that Joseph was close to the courts in his day. And this new pharaoh saw that these Israelites had become so numerous that they were potentially a threat. What if one of our enemies comes against us and the Israelites, our, our friends here, join with our enemies? They're too numerous for us. And so he enslaved them. You know the story. And now the law of the land was to control the population. Whenever the Israelites give birth to a boy, you kill the boy. Every male Israelite baby must die. Pharaoh was afraid. He was expressing worldly fear. And so he responded with death. Not just death threats, but with death itself. And so Moses was born, of course, into this context, but his parents saw something. And it's a subtle thing that we see in Scripture. In Exodus 2, this is what we read about it. A man from the house of Levi married a Levite woman. That means that Moses' family would be the family of priests in God's household eventually. She conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months. Now, you have to know, she took great personal risk to do this. She knew the law of the land, and yet she took this baby boy, and she hid him at her own risk for three months because she had seen something. The writer to the Hebrews reviews it a bit for us. He says, they saw that the child was beautiful. It's a good little detail there, and it's not something that any parent would be surprised to see because every baby is beautiful in a parent's eyes, aren't they? From the moment of conception, a parent sees that child with the eyes of their heart, and that child is beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than the child of a parent in their eyes. But Stephen, our friend, the martyr, in Acts chapter 7, suggests a little bit more. Here's what he says about that moment. He says, At this time, having reviewed Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right up through Joseph in Egypt, he says, At this time, Moses was born, and and he was beautiful in God's sight. 
the biblical writers recognized the theme. In other words, they realized that God had set this one apart for a certain purpose. He was beautiful in God's sight. Now, of course, hundreds of years later, Jesus would be born. Under remarkably similar circumstances, And the shepherds in the field, having been told by the angels of his birth, came and found him and worshipped him and told Mary and Joseph all that they had heard from the angels about their infant son. And we're told there that Mary treasured up these things in her heart. She pondered them in her heart after the shepherds had told them what they had heard from the angels. Mary must have seen the same thing that Moses' mother had seen. This child is beautiful in God's sight. Now, Jesus, of course, was threatened by the same kind of edict. The male children must die, and his parents found refuge in Egypt, where Moses had been threatened himself. Moses, in his call as this distinction seems to imply, he's a beautiful one in God's sight. This call of Moses was a type of Christ. His parents were not afraid of the king's edict because they were emboldened by God's call upon their son. Moses was unafraid because he was captivated by a king, not by Pharaoh, of course, but by a greater king, Here's what we read. We see that that Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. And again, Stephen helps us a little bit. Here's what Stephen says. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. Moses supposed, now here Stephen interprets, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Moses already was persuaded of God's call. He knew Pharaoh. I mean, he had grown up in the court. He was adopted into the family. But Hebrews tells us that he saw a greater king. He saw a greater king than the one that he knew in his household in Egypt. By faith, he saw a greater king, and so he left Egypt, not being afraid of the king's anger. Now, one little caveat here. In Exodus 2, if you go back and read the historical account of this, you see something there that might seem a little bit confusing. There in Exodus 2, Moses, as Stephen accounted for us, came upon the Israelites being oppressed by the Egyptian, and He struck down the Egyptian, and he assumed the Israelites would understand, but they didn't. And the next day, he comes upon two Israelites who are quarreling with one another, and he stops them and says, why are you quarreling among brothers? And their response to him is, so what? Are you going to kill us too? And there in Exodus chapter 2, we read that hearing that Moses was afraid He was afraid that his deed had become known because until then he didn't realize that it was known, but now he realizes he was afraid that his deed had become known. And when he learned that Pharaoh now sought to kill him, he shoved his fear aside and he left. He left Egypt. 
Why would he shove his fear aside like this? Because he saw him who's invisible. Moses was captivated by a king, invisible, the king of kings, more so than by the powerful king of Egypt. But Moses is not the only one who's called by a captivating king. I mean, you know it. You may not lead a million people out of bondage, but God has given you gifts. He's called you in particular ways. He's placed you in particular places. He's given you opportunities in particular ways to serve in His coming kingdom, which is still coming, though it's already here. And though the world scoffs at such notions, because in church, in ministering in the coming kingdom of God, there's just not as much of a return on worldly investment as the world might request and require. The world scoffs at that. But the world is afraid. Just like like Pharaoh was afraid. Pharaoh feared for the security of his personal kingdom. And so he responded with worldly fear as it does, saying, let's enslave them. Let's oppress them. Let's put them down. Let's slander them because of our worldly fear. This is what worldly fear does. But gospel fear doesn't. You also are beautiful in God's sight. So by faith, see him who is invisible and shove your fear aside. You know, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed fervently for the cup to pass from him. Fervently afraid of what was to come as he knew it. He was afraid, but he knew his calling from his father and he knew his own kingship his own coming kingdom. And so he shoved his fear aside and he faced his accusers. Moses' defiance shows itself in in that uh, repression of fear, but it also shows in his refusal, his refusal of privilege. Verse 24, we read there, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he do that? Why would he refuse such a privilege to be called the son of the king's daughter. Well, remember who raised him. You remember the story? His own mother raised him. She set him in the basket in the river and Pharaoh's daughter found the baby in the basket and Moses' sister was nearby. The Pharaoh's daughter picked the baby up and fell in love. And Moses' sister said, can I go and get a Hebrew woman to nurse and care for the child for you? And she said, yes. And now Moses' mother had a paid job to raise her own son in God's good providence. And you know, you know that she taught to the young boy. She taught him of God's covenant, of his promises, of his words through Joseph that surely one day God will come and rescue you out of Egypt. Moses knew these things from a young age. The seeds were planted in the boy so that when The pleasures of worldly privilege came. He saw them as they were, fleeting, because that's all that they are. When he grew up, he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and she named him Moses, we're told in the passage there, and that's a very fitting name. She named him that because she drew him out of the water, and that's what the name means. Of course, God had a bigger plan, didn't he? Because Moses would draw his people out of bondage. It was a fitting name. And for three decades, Moses had access to the training and the power and the protection and the pleasures of the privileges of the royal court. In fact, Stephen, 
And Acts 7 tells it to us this way. He says, Moses was instructed in all the ways of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and in deed. Moses had all of these privileges. Much like his great, 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 great uncle, Joseph. Joseph had the privileges of the court as well, but there's a difference in their call at their different points of redemptive history. Joseph's calling was to maintain a position of power and of privilege in order to provide Israel, God's people, with refuge and prosperity even in the land, to preserve the family. Moses lives at a different time in redemptive history, though. Moses' call is to relinquish his position of power and of privilege in order to lead Israel out of bondage and into freedom. Moses chose to be mistreated. He chose to associate himself with his people who were now slaves rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. And he did it to gain something greater. He did it to gain greater treasures. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses refused the fleeting pleasures in order to gain the greater treasures. And those treasures are what? Reproach. Disapproval. Disappointment. Discredit. Disgrace. Not from Christ, but with Christ. That's what Moses, in his eyes of faith looking forward, was able to do. That's what he saw, and that's what he chose to do as we see from Scripture. This is what Moses chose to do. You know, the day after he killed the Egyptian to save the Israelite, the day after he found those two Israelites quarreling with one another, and he broke up the quarrel, and they responded saying, Look, who made you to be ruler and judge over us? Are you just going to kill us too? One day, Moses had two people to associate with, the Egyptians and the Israelites. The next day, he had none. He was on his own. He was now on the hit list of the world's most powerful king, and he was on the blacklist of the people that he loved. Moses chose reproach as a greater treasure. To him, it was greater wealth to walk the path of the suffering servant who, in redemptive history, had yet to walk that path. And so Moses relinquished his position and he fled from Egypt because his time had not yet come. Now, if Moses' story sounds a little bit like the story of Jesus himself, well, it's because it is. It's really quite similar. Moses even knew that another one was coming after him, one whom he foreshadowed in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the the second reading of the law. It's a long sermon that Moses gives to the people before they enter into the promised land. And there in Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells the people what God had already told him, saying this, Moses, I will raise up for the people a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Moses delivering Israel out of bondage 
into freedom was a foreshadowing of what Christ would ultimately do as Moses' second coming, as it were. Paul writes it this way, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death. If you're united to Christ, then you share in his sufferings and in his reproach. You do. I mean, where he has hope, you have hope. And where he suffers, you suffer. But listen, where he is gone, there you will go. This world and its privilege is not yours if you look forward to the reward, as did Moses. So his defiance is shown in repression and in refusal. It's also shown in rejection as he rejected self-reliance. Stephen, again, in Acts 7, explains a little bit to us, saying that God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he sent him back to Egypt. And Stephen says, This Moses, whom Israel had rejected, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the word from the burning bush. Moses went back to the people who had sarcastically declared to him, who made you prince and ruler over us? In other words, we don't need you, Moses. We're self-reliant. And now the world says to Jesus, who made you prince and ruler over us? We don't need you, Jesus. We're self-reliant. The gospel is the sovereign appointment of a prince who provides all that God requires of his people. Because we have nothing to offer. We have nothing on which to rely. You know, there are tons of ways in which Moses is shown to be a type of Christ throughout Scripture. Moses is maybe the most prominent of those in Scripture as we see him. Here are some of the ways. Both of them were threatened as infants by fearful worldly kings. Moses by Pharaoh, of course, and Jesus by a king, Herod. Both of them had parents who orchestrated the protection of their sons. Moses by staying in Egypt. Jesus by going to Egypt. Both of them identified themselves with their people. Moses with Israel despite their bondage to Egypt. And Jesus with the human race despite its bondage to sin. And both of them defeated an oppressive king. Moses defeated Pharaoh Jesus defeated Satan and death. And both of them delivered God's people. Moses delivering them from the bondage to Egypt. Jesus delivering us from our bondage to death and to sin. And both of them, by submitting themselves to God's redemptive plan, rejected self-reliance. And together, this gospel passed over and it passed through. So verse 28, by faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. You know the story, it was the 10th plague, the 10th and final one, the night before the exodus was to happen. And the Lord gave instructions, each household should take a lamb and on the 14th day of the month, this is when this will happen, on the 14th day of the month, kill the lamb. 
and roast it as a meal for your family with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and take blood from the lamb and spread it on the doorpost outside of your home so that the destroying angel will see it and pass over in mercy upon your family. And for years to come, the Lord said, observe this meal. Observe this meal to remember how the Lord delivered you. Now, of course, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years later, Jesus would gather his disciples together on the night before the true exodus. He would gather them around the table. They would recline at the table to observe this memorial supper as God's people had now for ages. And they would gather together with the unleavened bread on the table and the bitter herbs. And you have to imagine the scene. The disciples must have, as they gathered, they had the bread, they had the herbs. They must have wondered and even asked, where's the lamb? And as Jesus unfolded that very table, what they would hear from him was, I am the lamb. I am the lamb. And we're observing this supper for real here. I am the lamb who fulfills this supper. It will be my body and my blood that gives you life. My friends, I am the lamb. There is nothing in you on which to reply, to rely. Jesus is the lamb. And also, verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. They fled from Egypt just as God had instructed Right, And now they stood on the edge of the sea with the ocean on one side and the Egyptian army behind them. And God gave directions again. Moses, lift up your hand above the sea. And he did. And he watched it part. He watched the sea divide right in half, right down the middle. The sea opened up and the ground under the sea dried up. I mean, it's a remarkable that, I mean, it's a miracle that we can only see in our imaginations, isn't it? It's such a, an astonishing thing to consider. This is what they watched happen. And through they went, right on through the sea they passed. Hundreds of years later, Jesus would say, Not only I will make a way, but what? I am the way. I am the path through the sea. I am the way by which you pass through from death to life. By him we pass through not only from death to life, but from bondage to freedom. And only, only by him. The gospel is the complete and total rejection of self-reliance. Because we have nothing on which to rely. Moses shows us by his rejection of that, that the gospel is the passing over by mercy. And the gospel is the passing through by grace as Jesus fulfills all of those things in ways that Moses even could not. The fruit of the Spirit, what is it? You ought to know it. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is all of these things. But there's a little irony. There's, there's just another thing. 
It's also defiance. It's also defiance. The world would shape you if you would let it. It would. But gospel faith says no. It says no. I am defiant. Gospel faith is that. And so repress the world's fear. Shove it aside. Refuse the world's privilege. There's far better as you see in faith. And reject the world's self-reliance. You have nothing. You have nothing to offer. And instead, look in faith to the reward. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us, again, eyes to see. Would you grant, Lord, that we might believe and recognize the truth of your gospel so that as we walk in faith, Lord, you might be glorified, you might be honored, and you might be exalted above all. These things we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.